there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. So glad you could join us for another caffeinated career conversation. If you're someone who thinks you need to be in your 30s or even your 40s before you can get a job with an impressive title, fear not, my friends, because my next guest is a chief of staff to a CEO, and she's in her 20s. And we're going to learn more about how she did it and what she does in her day-to-day job. But before I introduce you to her, if you haven't already signed up for the Java Junkies Journal, that's the weekly newsletter we send out first thing Monday morning, to give Java Junkies an inside look at the episodes we're dropping that week, please head on over to the Time for Coffee website. That's time, the number four, coffee. Dot org and sign up. In the meantime, grab a mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is Margaret Richardson, who is chief of staff to the president and editor-in-chief at DevX. And for those of you who may not be familiar with DevX, it's the media platform for the global development community, and it's the largest provider of recruiting and business development services for companies, private foundations, and NGOs in the global development community. Margaret, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, I'm really interested in learning how a young woman in her 20s got this really impressive job working for Raj Kumar, who is the president and editor-in-chief of DevX. How did you get the job? (laughs) Well, thank you again for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Well, very practically, I applied to the job posting and I got it, but that's not a satisfying answer. So I think it started with my interest in international development and just being really interested in figuring out whether or not there was a role in the field of international development, which, and and I'm going to say global development and international development. I mean, they're the same thing. By figuring out if there was a job in there that would allow me to see the scope of the entire landscape. I really wanted to learn about all aspects of global development and all of the different projects and initiatives that were happening. And so when I found DevAct, the media platform for the international, the global development community, I was like, this place, this place seems really cool. And, and I saw a job posting for special assistant to the president. So I applied and I am an incredibly privileged. I was able to move down to D.C. after college and work for a state senator for a little while before this. So I was able to do this interview. And, and that's a big part of this. But when I spoke to Raj about the role, he was interested in finding someone who could act as a special assistant, but but also grow. And, you know, I was it was really important to me to find a role that would be challenging and had a growth path. And and he had quite an interesting one and it was into this chief of staff role. So we had a conversation about his needs and why he was looking for a special assistant and why he was looking for someone who could grow into the chief of staff role. And I figured, you know, either I would, this would work out and I'd fall in love with the company and I'd grow and it would be wonderful. Or I would do what a lot of other people do who are my age, which is stay for two years, get great job experience and, and then move on. And I think it's clear that I decided to stay. So what is the difference between a special assistant 
and a chief of staff. And we'll get into more of the nitty gritty of what a chief of staff does in just a couple of minutes. But could you explain to Java Junkies kind of how those two roles are different? Yeah. And this is, I'm so glad you asked because I think this is an essential question for people who are interested in this role to ask themselves, but also CEOs who are, who think that they want a chief of staff. They really need to be intentional about the difference between an assistant and a chief of staff because what you don't want is an assistant who is acting as a chief of staff or a chief of staff who's acting as an assistant. They are two very separate roles. So I'm so glad you asked. Being a special assistant in DevX, and it is different in many different companies, but at DevX, it meant doing a number of things. It meant doing a lot of the administrative work for the president and editor-in-chief, meaning scheduling meetings, organizing briefings and papers for all of his meetings, making sure that the meeting itself ran smoothly, like that the person was greeted and welcomed. And I also acted as the office manager. So that was a big part of being a special assistant at DevX. It's not all assistant roles that are part of that. And it was a lot of, you know, booking travel and, and doing mostly administrative work. As a chief of staff, I'm actually taking on some of Raj's, our president editor-in-chief's initiatives and working strategically with him to move them forward, whether that's internally and externally. I also lead a team internally that focuses on our talent and culture. I'm happy to talk about that more. And I do, instead of just organizing the meeting or scheduling the meeting, I'm, I'm actually in the meeting and I'm thinking about the number of different things our organization can do with our clients um, in order to help them do their jobs better. So it is, it is a totally separate role, both super, super important to the functionality of the organization and Raj in particular, but very different roles. And it's important to make that distinction clear, but when you're transitioning from an assistant to a chief of staff, but also when you're a CEO thinking about, do I need an assistant or a chief of staff? Mm, Thank you for that. That's really helpful. So take us into an average day for you as chief of staff. What are the different functions? What are you doing? What's the day like? Sure. So before I answer that, I think it's important to to maybe talk about the two different big parts of my role. So my role can be split into two things, internal and external. And any given day, I'm working on internal work and external work. And so externally, I focus on the the external communications for Raj, our president and editor-in-chief. And I'm thinking about business development and any kind of special project or strategic initiative that we're doing externally with different clients that he's working on, that I'm working on, that we're working on together. Internally, I lead our people team, which is a team that we have expanded in the last couple of years to include our talent and our culture. And that basically means our recruiting and our human capital development or our professional development. What is the culture of the company and, and how do we make sure people are, are functioning at their highest capacity, that they're happy, that they're feeling well and that they like coming to work. So at any given day, I mean, I'm sure as many of your interviewees, I don't have a typical day, but usually I try to get into the office around between 8 and 8.30 and I try to spend the morning reading news. I always read DevX news, but I also try to read a number of other publications just to get a scope and an understanding of what happened overnight, what happened at the end of the day yesterday and what we need to know to move forward. Sometimes the people we work with will be mentioned or there'll be important news to make sure I flag Farage. So I try to do that every morning. And then it is usually I try to make sure that my day has a few hours carved out just to work on emails or projects, long-term projects that I need to focus on reviewing, briefing materials for Raj, making sure that I'm moving forward on my own projects. And it's really important to carve out those couple of hours because the hours can get taken up very quickly by meetings. And then the rest of the day will usually be meetings, whether it's internal or external. So for example, today I had a 
meeting with our team lead for the people team. We talked about different initiatives we're going to do in October. And then I have an external call later today to work on a event concept for an event that we're going to do in New York. And and my role there is to make sure that it aligns with what Raj's vision for the event was. And also, I mean, as it relates to our editorial priorities, but also to make sure that the the right people are are talking to, to that person for the event in order to make it happen. And then usually I'll have, I might have one or two meetings, just one on one with people in our team here talking about either the external work that they're working on and what we need to be thinking about as it relates to our strategic priorities. Or sometimes I'm talking to someone and they're not sure who to go to, or they have a question that is a little bit more complex and they just need to kind of talk it out or something like that. So I I do, you know, usually a couple times a week, just have one-on-one conversations with team members about it can really be anything, but it's usually it's over coffee, which I know you guys all love. So we (laughs) we do have quite a bit of coffee meetings about that. So how frequently are you meeting with, talking with your boss? Yeah. So a, a big part of every day is talking to Raj. He and I try to check in once a day, if not twice a day, to talk about a number of different things. And usually there'll be a couple quick check-ins about different projects. And then there'll be a larger one where we're going through, okay, what do we need to accomplish today? What do we need to accomplish this week? What are the things coming down the pipeline that we need to pay attention to? But we, Raj and I talk quite frequently. Do you set weekly goals, monthly goals? I'm sure you have annual goals, but how granular do you get in trying to measure progress towards those objectives? Sure. So yeah, he and I have annual goals that we try to hit. And then I would say it's probably more quarterly. What are we trying to accomplish this quarter? And then I personally set like weekly or monthly goals for myself and my team to make sure that I'm that I have something to measure that uh, growth by or that the progress by. Can you talk us through Margaret how you break out a quarterly goal into weekly segments? Yeah, so usually it, almost every quarter there's maybe one big event or a week that we need to be a part of that Raj is a big part of. So this past week, we were at the UN General Assembly meetings in New York, and there's a series of side events around that. So for this quarter, I knew that that would be a big part of it. And so from there, it's figuring out what are we doing during those meetings. So during that week, we did bilateral meetings, which are one-on-one meetings with Raj and and other clients. We did, he had many speaking engagements. We were involved in a few different events. So So from there, I sort of broke it out. Okay, what do I need to accomplish each week to make sure that that's that all of those things are moving forward at a rate that's appropriate. And then we have a few internal metrics and goals that we're trying to hit this next couple months. There's a executive leadership team retreat that I'm involved in. And we are in the process of having a couple new people join us. So I'm breaking out those events and coming up with, you know, to do's or things that need to be executed each week in order to make sure that when that person does join or when that team that meeting does come up, we're ready to go. So one of the things that really jumped out at me looking at your resume, Margaret, more so than really with almost any other resume that I've had the pleasure of looking at over the course of 80 interviews that I've done to date is the specificity in progress that you have. You have a lot of percentages that you're putting in your bullet points. So you're saying things like manages strategy for all executive internal and external cross-team communication, special projects, initiatives, and partnerships resulting in 
35% increase in workflow efficiency for the principal. You have another mention designs and manages internal culture initiatives resulting in 70% increase in wellness programming and 7% increase in overall team satisfaction and happiness. How did you measure your progress. I mean, I first of all, kudos to you for just having that initiative, but I think that it's great that you're able to demonstrate the impact of what you're doing. Yeah, I think the best advice I got with regards to a resume is, so two things, update it regularly because you're not going to remember what you've done every single year. So, you know, to the best that you can update it regularly. And this was from a woman who she worked at JP Morgan for 30 years and never really had to update her resume. So she's always told me to to keep my resume updated, but then also to make it as specific as possible. So for some things, if you are looking at your resume or your listeners are looking at their resumes, they're not going to be able to come up with hard exact numbers, but they there are some ways that you can guess or figure it out or come up with a comfortable number that at least you can explain how you got there. So for, for some of those numbers, we have an internal, use an internal metric for measuring people's happiness or wellness or satisfaction at work. It's a platform actually, and we've surveyed our teams every couple of weeks. And that's a way to keep track of how people are doing and how our culture is. And so some of those numbers are pulled from there. The, you know, 70% increase in wellness programming, that's simply because I know that we were only doing a certain number of wellness programs the year before. And now we've increased by a certain number and that equals 70%. With the numbers that are increased in efficiency, that is a little bit difficult, more difficult to guess and to explain, but it's mostly in the number of projects or meetings or initiatives that we're able to work on versus the year before. So I know that we're doing X number more meetings or sending off projects or writing proposals than we were the year before. And that that is a percentage higher. Great. Thank you for breaking that down for us. Margaret, I would imagine that in order to be a great, whether special assistant or chief of staff, you'd need to be very organized. What are your tips, your tricks, your kind of secret sauce that you have used to make yourself as efficient and organized as you must be? It's a great question. And you definitely do need to be organized. One thing that has always helped me is getting into the office earlier than everybody else or as early as I possibly can so that I have an hour, half an hour to look at my day and figure out what exactly needs to happen at what time in order to make myself as efficient and as productive as possible throughout the day. So that has been a good practice and has been a good thing for me is just being able to have some quiet time in the morning to go over everything so that I'm ready to go when everybody else is in the office or when my meetings start. So I think carving out that time to set your intention for the day and set your set your priorities for the day is really important. The flip side is that at the end of the day, I think there's a temptation to like send off the last email and leave. But what has always helped me is to just take a quick check at what happened today, what still needs to happen for tomorrow and making room for that in tomorrow's schedule. So if I didn't get something done today, looking at my schedule tomorrow and putting in a specific time to finish that is really important. I also think it is important to carve out 
time in your calendar. So I, I work a lot in Google Calendar. That's how I keep track of most of my, my life at work. So to carve out that time on Google Calendar just to answer emails and that you should treat that as, as important as, a, as an external meeting. That, that is your time to answer your emails. And then once you're done doing that, that's it. Then work on something else. I think there's a temptation to answer emails as they come in or answer messages as they come in. And I have really tried to section that off so that I'm not constantly trying to manage everything. I'm managing one thing at a time incrementally. What I have learned is that even if messages come in and they feel urgent, they're usually not. If they are, someone will come and find you or they'll call you or they'll, you know, they'll find another way to talk to you about it. But most of the time you can carve out that this is the time to answer internal messages. This is the time to answer emails. This is the time to work on that project. And that has always helped me be organized and efficient with my time. Thanks. I'm still struggling with it. <laughs> so I love yeah, hearing it. <laughs> no, and I should say it is a constant battle. It really is. And things will come up. But I think if you can try to the best of your ability to put in some time in the morning, even just to review, it, it's helpful. It really is. Absolutely. I, I'm a big proponent of getting in early and trying to mm -hmm. carve out that quiet time at the beginning of the day, or as you said, even at the end of the day. Margaret, I want to flash back to when you were an undergrad at Smith College. You majored in government and you minored in Middle Eastern studies. Did you know what you were going to do when you graduated? No, definitely not. No, definitely not. I I obviously knew that the title chief of staff when I was in, in college and I was aware of political chiefs of staff, certainly. But did I know that I was going to end up at a social enterprise that was the media platform for the global development community as chief of staff? No way. It was it was definitely not something I didn't I don't think I even realized that social enterprise exists existed when I was in, in college. Yeah. Well, they haven't been around all that long, so I'm not surprised that you wouldn't have been aware of it. Before I get into how you got your first job out of college, could you share with us what extracurricular activities or clubs or I don't know if Smith has sororities that you were involved in that now in hindsight, you look back on and say, oh my gosh, they really did help prepare me for the working world. Sure. So the best thing, the best extracurricular activity I ever did in high school, in middle school and in college is play sports. I played field hockey at Smith and I played in, in high school and being on a sports team, being on a competitive team was not only was it an incredible experience during when I was playing, but it has served me probably more than almost anything else that I've done in the job that I have today. And my degree was hugely important to one aspect of my career. And I think studying abroad was really important to another aspect of my career. But across the board, playing on a team and playing competitive sports has truly had the most impact on me. I think that probably is true for any competitive team. I imagine that debate teams or other teams that don't require athleticism have the same type of bonding and vulnerability that exists on a sports team, but I just never did them. So I don't know. Being on a competitive team, especially at the collegiate level, it's a different level of bonding that you get. And I think you push each other to be the absolute best you possibly can be every single day. You make mistakes all the time and you have to immediately get back up and try again and try harder and get better every single time you get back up. There's this feeling of 
intimacy and vulnerability that has to exist in order to push each other really, really, really hard. But it's also not like family in a lot of ways, because you still have to hold each other really accountable and say, you need to get that ball next time, or you should have had that that shot. And I think that that is a really important distinction when in the workplace that sometimes it can feel like family, it really can. But at the end of the day, you still have to hold each other accountable, you still have to make sure you're not making the same mistakes over and over again. And you do have to have that trust and that bonding in order to push each other to be the best you possibly can be every day. And I think that playing sports ingrained that in me in such a way that it comes naturally now. I also think the importance of coaching and having a good coach cannot be undersold at all. I had fantastic coaches my entire sports career, and I was incredibly lucky for that. But especially in high school and college, my coaches were the people who had the great advice, but also helps me figure it out on my own. And a lot of sports is figuring it out on your own because you don't have someone sitting next to you on the field. And that is really important in the job because you don't want someone who's micromanaging your whole life when you're at work. You do have to figure out things on the fly, but you also have to know that when you do make a mistake or you do need help, it's okay to go to your coach or your team lead. And, and that's something that's really important at DevX as well, this idea of coaching. So I think if there's any anything that served me outside of the classroom, it was playing sports. So how did you get your first job after you graduated from Smith in May of 2014? Sure. So during college, actually, I worked and the summer before before my senior year, I worked on Senator Angus King's senatorial campaign in Maine. And so I studied government. I've always been interested in local politics. I interned for Senator Susan Collins and Senator Snow in high school and early on in college. They were the two female senators in my state, and I thought it was really great to work for strong, passionate women. Um, and then when Angus ran for senator as an independent, as a Democrat, I wanted to see what it was like in an independent candidate race. So I worked for his campaign and I really loved it and enjoyed it and thought it was super, super exciting. And I really admired how his team truly tried to sit down with Democrats and Republicans and independents in Maine and come to some kind of conclusion as to what his policy should be. He had the luxury of doing that as an independent. And I really loved that. So I knew that when I was looking at jobs after graduation that I wanted to find something that felt similar. And as it turned out, they had a paid internship program, which again, was it's an enormous help when you're just leaving college to find a paid internship. It's, it's a real it's a real luxury and, and something that helps young graduates especially. So I found that they had that and, and that's how I I was offered that internship and then I took it and came down to DC to work for him for a couple months. So it was really from your time working on the Senate campaign that you built up the relationships then that you were able to reach back out and exactly try to get and, that and paid I internship. Yeah. And I should say that it was also working for Senator Snow and Senator Collins that helped me have those connections to the campaign in the first place. Got it. Got it. So, Margaret, I try to ask all time for coffee guests to share a time that they struggled in their professional life. And I recognize that you have been in the working world for a relatively brief period of time. But I'm wondering if you've experienced a low point or a rough patch and would mind sharing it with our listeners, especially how you came through the other side, how you weathered the storm and maybe what lessons you learned. Sure. 
So I think in general, you are going to make mistakes. There will be times that you beat yourself up as a professional. And something I have learned is that there is no amount of proofreading or checking your list twice that will mitigate for mistakes. They just happen. And some are worse than others. I think one time I can think about in particular that was tough for me is this was a moment, but it it sort of left a, a feeling. There was a time that a colleague called me on the phone and wanting to talk about an issue that was quite serious. And I was not prepared for the call. And what I should have done in that moment is say, hey, listen, I'm actually not prepared to talk about this right now. I'm I'm sort of in the middle of doing a number of different things. But I really want to talk to you about this. This is a really important issue. Can we talk tomorrow in person or later today in person? I should have I should have not tried to push through the conversation knowing that I didn't have all the right resources. And instead, I pushed through. And I think what happened was it was more confusing than it needed to be. And I'm not sure that that person felt totally heard or totally great about the conversation afterwards. And my goal when I talk to anybody is to make sure that they do feel heard and that we're helping that I'm helping them come up with solutions or ways to move forward that are productive. And this one I knew that I wasn't in the right sort of mind space. I think I was running to another meeting. I knew I wasn't in the right mind space to have this phone call. But instead of recognizing that and owning that, I tried to just fix it. And when I got off the phone, you know, I was uncomfortable. And, and it stayed with me for a couple of days, just knowing that I should have done differently or that person wasn't didn't feel quite heard or or quite as if I had given them the attention they deserved. And and. So I addressed it. I went to that person and said, hey, listen, just want you to know, I think I should have done this. I wasn't in the right space. Can we talk about it again? And they were incredibly gracious and, and wonderful and said, yeah, of course, you know, that was weird for me too. And this was serious for me. And I wasn't, you know, so we, we ended up talking through it. I think the, the most important thing when it comes to any rough patch or mistake or even just a feeling off is that you own it. There's going to be times when you don't feel great. There's going to stuff that happens in your personal life or stuff that happens at work that just it just affects things. And I think if you own it and you, to the best of your ability, can communicate about it and just let the people around you know, like, yeah, I, I feel weird about this. Like, I'd love to talk about it. Or I just I generally I feel weird about this. I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a funk. That usually helps me. I think everybody can understand and relate to having a tough time or making a mistake everybody has done it. And so the more that you can be honest and open about it and vulnerable about it, I think the better off you'll be. Wow. I'm sure this is not going to be the first time you've heard this, but you are mature and wise beyond your years, Margaret, for sure. So Margaret, final time for coffee question and recognizing that you only graduated a little over four years ago from college. But if you could go back to Smith and do it all over again, Based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I think I would advise myself to take more classes that are maybe crazier or outside my major or ones that looked interesting, but I couldn't quite figure it into my plan. So I didn't take them. I think that I was surprised to learn that being on a field hockey team would serve me so much. I, I, I think about it all the time and it continues to surprise me. And I think that a lot of the classes that I took or that I think about the most are ones that weren't necessarily part of my major. And I had fantastic professors within the government program and people did encourage me to take classes outside. But it is true that the ones that I think about the most or that have helped me think about things differently or better or have pushed me to come up with different ways to address in the workplace, those were classes that were not in the plan of my major. And I think 
if I could go back, I would just take crazier classes outside of, of, of the norm. I love it. And I think that is such wonderful advice. I think it's another way of saying maybe you would have relaxed a bit about being yeah. so intentional with filling all those requirements for your totally. major, right? Absolutely. I think if you study what you love, whether that's philosophy or English or sociology, what matters is what you actually want to do in the world. So study art history, take the crazy class, the rest will fall into place if you are determined to make an impact in the world or if you are determined to get that job in that industry, you'll find a way to make yourself the right candidate for that job. But college is a time where you are able to take a lot of different things and explore. And it does sound so cliche, but cliches are there for a reason. And I do think yeah, I would have I would have pushed myself to to go outside my comfort zone a little bit because those the one the times that I did are are the ones that served me the best. Margaret, you are such a remarkable young woman. You have already accomplished so much and I have no doubt that as your career continues to evolve, you are going to reach new heights. Thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. This is a great podcast, a great initiative, and I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.